0: Hey, good morning. 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 I guess guess my mic wasn't fully on yet, so maybe anyways. Anyways, good morning. Really glad all of you are here worshiping online, if you're here in the room. I'm Charlie, the lead pastor here, and if you're new, we're really, really glad that you are here. We are uh, in the middle of a series on Colossians, but before we get to that, I just kind of want to talk about one thing real quick. We haven't spent a whole lot of time over the last year kind of talking about how giving is going at the church in part, mostly because, I mean, it's just been a stressful year and it's been a lot of financial uncertainty and did not want to just, the giving of the church to be another, another feel like another stressor. And at the same time, for, for most of this pandemic, our giving has been really, really good. Uh, especially when you consider that, you know, we have not been able to do a lot of the programs and things we normally would. We've been just doing just fine really up until the last couple of months, things taken taken a bit of a seasonal dip and then there's just been some, you know, it's been a low for the last, last month or so. And as I think about finishing up this fiscal year for us, which runs from July to June and thinking about this next year, and as I think about this next year and the hope and the expectation, the anticipation of just kind of being able to be fully back and to be able to do church the way that we have been and to, to be able to minister in all the ways that we have, the, the events and the outreach, um, it's going to require us to kind of get back to um, a, a better giving level. And the way I've been describing this with our staff, as I say, man, you know, when we think about August, if we're going to go back to August being like it was, say, two years ago, we've been kind of operating under this old way for the last, you know, 13, 14 months now. And I've, I feel like like probably a lot of some muscles have atrophied, where we've just kind of gotten to a rhythm of not doing things or doing other things. And in order for us to kind of launch back in August, I told him, you need to be thinking about, man, what are some things in your brain you need to kind of get ready to start doing again? And I think collectively for us, I think giving, you know, Obviously, each Sunday morning, um, small groups, there's just lots of things we've gotten used to not doing that we need to get back into that rhythm. And so I would just encourage you to kind of, if you've kind of lost that rhythm, to get back. We need to get back into a stronger weekly giving number where we really can meet the demands of what it is that God has called us to. We're not crazy behind. We're not in any sort of danger situation. I would talk to you about that long before we hit that. But we are in a place where if we really are thinking, man, we want to really re-engage at a deeper, better way starting this fall, we, 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 our giving needs to increase. And so it really is, and I want to I break this down like the way that math majors would, which is what I was, I was a math major. It really is as simple as if 50 different families said we can increase by $100 a month that would more than take care of any deficit we have and allow us to kind of push forward. Because obviously there are some of you that need to do more than that to kind of get back into the groove of regular giving, to get back into the groove of tithing. Um, but if we all just made a small difference, then we would be able to be right where we need to be. And so I just encourage you, and just, uh, as you pray, talk with your families about what you can do to kind of help us with this deficit um, over, the, over the next couple of months, and then moving forward um, uh, as we launch into a new year, what, what, what you can do to increase, to solidify your giving and allow us to continue to do the awesome things God called us to, to minister to each other, uh, to reach out to the people who don't have a church home, who are disconnected from God in our community, the hurting and the needy in our community, and ultimately to send missionaries all over the U.S. and the world, which is what God has given us the uh, privilege to do and invite you to continue to be a part of that. If you are new, we are not obsessed with giving. We'll talk about a lot um, as far as kind of how our church is doing, but it is important for us as a family to make sure that we're all on the same page kind of how and how we're doing. So to make the awkward transition, like I said, we're in Colossians. And we're in a passage at the end of Colossians chapter 2, and, and basically what he's talking about is, is, is really just kind of building on everything else we've talked about. And if you've been around for a while, you've probably, especially if you've ever been here on like a holiday Sunday or a Sunday where it's snowing outside, where I make a joke about, hey, if you were here today, you get double points. And the joke of that is, is the idea that somehow God is up there keeping an attendance notebook, and every time that you come to church, you get a point. And He's like, "There, oh, you were here today. You get a point." And then, like, if it's snowing outside, God's like, "Man, that was really impressive. You came to church today. Today, you get two points." And we make a joke about that. And some of you may be hearing me say this, like, "Dude, I didn't know that was a joke. I, I thought that was like real. I thought somebody really was. I thought maybe you were keeping. I'm not keeping a notebook. I don't have no uh, point system." And the next one, by the way, if you're you're wondering, the 4th of July is on a Sunday uh, this summer. So if you're looking to get an extra point, that's your your opportunity, July 4th. Um, So we make this joke, right, ha, 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 that somehow that God is monitoring our church attendance and giving us points. And it's not just that. It's all the good things you do. Every time you do something good, you get a point. Every time you do something bad, you lose a point. And God's got some spreadsheet out there that is your life. And we make a joke about it on snowy Sundays or torrential rain pour or, you know, they say it's the day after Christmas or whatever. And we all know that's a joke, right? Right? You don't really think that God is up there keeping score, do you? The reality of it is that we do. Whether or not we would say it in such a blatant way as double point Sunday... I think we know that aspects of that are certainly a joke. You don't certainly think that God's got that level of a notebook or that I have the authority on a random Sunday to give two points because it snowed. But I think we do. We, we, we view a relationship with God very often as a, a, a tallying of points. That if we are more good than we are bad then God is good with us, or maybe not just 51%, but there is some percentage of which I need to be a good person in order to please and satisfy God, and that's what life is. Life is, life with God is figuring out the rules, what God wants from me, doing all the right things, avoiding all the wrong things, and that allows me to have a good relationship with God. And it is that idea that Paul is speaking against here in the end of Colossians chapter 2. In Colossians chapter 2, starting in verse 16, we're going to see this word, it kind of starts off, kind of this phrase, verse 16, he says, Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink. We'll stop right there, because any time you see a passage that starts with this word, therefore, it's important for you to kind of, you know, just just kind of know what's going on there. So basically that therefore... He's about to make a conclusion, you know, don't let anybody judge you, we'll talk about this. Therefore, everything I've said before, I've been kind of building to this moment, all of this is true, and because this is true, therefore this. What Paul's been talking about up until this point, two weeks ago if you were here, talking about how Jesus is God, Jesus is supreme, he is the creator and sustainer of the entire universe. That he is not some small Jesus, he's not just a prophet, he's not just a teacher, he's not just a good man. He is the God of the universe who created and sustains the universe um, in himself. That's who Jesus is, He is way bigger than we think he is. And then last week, Mark was here and he talked about that there's this great mystery. And the great mystery is that this Jesus, the creator and the sustainer of the universe, he can live in you. Just that idea, Christ in you, that the sustainer and creator of the universe, his presence and his power can live in me. So what he's been talking about for us the last couple of weeks, for him, just a few verses, right? He's been saying, like, listen, Jesus is crazy big. He is the God of the universe, and the power and the presence of that God of the universe can live in you. Verse 16, Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. If Jesus lives in you, and the power of Jesus is in you, it doesn't make any sense to make a big deal about what you eat, what you drink, whether or not you follow these particular religious rules, or if, you, the, if, you, if you worship on the Sabbath in this way or that way, or if you follow these festivals. That doesn't make any sense. Jesus lives in you. Why would you think that religious rules are going to be the difference between whether or not you have a good relationship with God or not, when in fact the God of the universe lives inside of you and his presence is in you? It doesn't make any sense. You, I mean, if Jesus is in you, these rules, they don't make any sense. Verse 18. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. Such a person also goes into great detail about what they have seen. They are puffed up with idle notions by their unspiritual mind. Well, here's what Paul's doing. He's obviously talking about some, hey, it's not random. You know, don't let anybody who thinks that they've seen visions and talked to angels, don't let anybody like that. He's not talking about anybody. In our world, right, this would be called subtweeting somebody, right? He's got someone very, you know, just any random person. Don't let them say that. It's like, so there's obviously someone around them who has had some great vision where he is now seen and conversed with angels and he's, he knows all these things. And because of all these new things that he knows, he's come to them and say, it is really important that not only that you believe in Jesus, but that you also follow all of these rules and regulations. And you can know that they're the right rules because of this great experience that I've had. This was new back then, but it's not new to us. I mean, there's lots of religions and offshoots of Christianity that have come from just this idea. Uh, Islam was started this way Mormonism was started this way Where someone has this vision from an angel or something Where basically what they're told is Hey, Jesus isn't quite as big as you think he is Jesus is important But really what's important are these rules And now I have the key and the key to all of the rules that if you follow these rules this way, if you do this sort of diet, uh, eat these things and not these things, drink these things, not this thing, worship this way, worship this way, and you follow all these regulations, I finally unlocked for you the key to having a good relationship with God. And Paul's saying don't listen to people like that. Why should we not listen to people like that? Verse 19, they have lost connection with the head. Now again, this is a metaphor where Jesus is kind of the head of the body. They've lost connection with the head, from whom the whole body, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow. Since you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of the world, why, as though you still belong to the world, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These rules which have to do with things that are all destined to perish with use, are based on merely human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body. But they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. When you invite Jesus into your life, he's saying, basically you're saying that I am dead and I and, and this world is dead to me and now my life is found in God and Christ and and because of that, if that's true, how come the you feel like these rules are still so important? I mean, they're based on they're based on foods and dates and times and and calendars and 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 things that you drink, things that one day just won't exist anymore. How can the key to your spiritual life be in something that is that temporary when you have Jesus Christ in you? And then he closed up and said, I know that this that this idea it's it seems to make sense that following the rules gets you there, but it doesn't. And so he's making this case, and he's making this case in a very detailed sort of way to say that following religious rules and guidelines, I mean, that's not what's going to save you. Following the rules can't save you. It's basically what he's saying. You've got what you eat, what you drink, where you worship, how you worship, certain days that you're supposed to worship, and other days you're supposed to worship and do this and this way. It's like... That's not what's going to do it. It, it. it can't do it. And again, there's all of these kind of complicated things that this really specific meant to the Colossians, specifically with like what they were going to do with the Old Testament rules and regulations about dietary restrictions and what you can eat, what you can drink, and, and when and how you're supposed to worship and on what days. And some of us, we may not struggle with that anymore but we've got our own sets of rules, and we are still looking, so many of us, to, for rules to save us. Now, I'm going to define a particular kind of theological term for you here, and the term is legalism. You may have not heard that word before. You may have heard it before. Some people throw this word around, and it means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. But really, at its core, what this word legalism means is that that you can be saved, you can have a relationship with God based on what you do. Not just simply because Jesus died on the cross for you, but based on what you do. And I don't know if you think that you struggle with this or not. Well, you just can just do a real simple internal mental test here. Imagine if you are in heaven, and you've just died, and you're heading that way, and say, imagine it's all like what the, like the cartoons say it is. You're now walking on a cloud and then God or Jesus or Peter or somebody's at a gate with some sort of book. And they're like, What are you doing here? And you're like, yeah, I'm just trying to get in, man. You know, you know, it seems a good place to be. Okay, you're trying to get into heaven. That's fair. Why should I let you in? As you think about what you would say to that question, my fear is that most of us begin to start thinking about. Relative goodness. Well, I'm a pretty good person. I'm a pretty good person. You know, there's I've made this joke if you've been around for a while. I made this joke like, you know, some people say, "Well, I never killed anybody," which is a really low bar, right? I mean, it's like I never killed anybody. I mean, I'm pretty good. I mean, I look around. I'm a good person. You know, 60% of the time, 70% of the time, I'm pretty good. I do, I do, I do good things. That's where most of us go. We think that, that, that that's just kind of our natural instinct. My relative goodness. As I look around the room, I think, I'm better than them. You let me in. Look over the gate there like that, that, that guy. I knew that guy, right? And it's like it's, we think about our relative goodness. Now, some of you may be more astute theologically. you like, oh, I know that's not true. I know that I'm supposed to say because Jesus died on the cross for my sins. I may not be completely sure what that means, but uh, I've been to church enough to know that that's what I'm supposed to say. Great, because that's the right answer. Jesus died on the cross for my sins, and I made that personal for me. I accepted and received that. That's the answer. But even still, there are some of us that think that at that point, though, everything changes. I get in for free, but that's when God gets the notebook out. Because in order for me to have a good relationship with God after that point, that requires following all his rules, which what we'll call, and this is a made-up term, this is not a, I'm not going to find this in any theology books or anything, this is my own thing, we're just going to call that retroactive legalism, or, or lay-away legalism, or rent-to-own legalism, right? It's free at first, hey, come in here, brand new TV, zero money down, hey, it's a free TV, that TV ain't free, Hey, just come in. Just believe in Jesus. It's completely free. It's all by grace. Jesus died for you. No requirements. And then, and then and you take it home. He's like, there's a lot of rules. And if you want to keep the TV, you're going to have to make payments. And if you want to have a good relationship with God, you'd better follow the rules. Because that's what determines a good relationship with God, is rules. And we have this in our head. And it typically comes from one of two places an irrational fear of God that if I don't do right, that God is just one mistake, maybe two mistakes away from the smite button. He's got a thunderbolt loaded, ready for me. There's a, I want to walk underneath a piano that's held by ropes. It's crazy Like how many TV shows and cartoons created that situation. I've never even once ever seen a piano held by ropes. Man, it's not going to the right places, Right. Anvil's going to fall on your head. Like all these things that are, you know, anyways. Um, like you just think that God is one, I'm one mistake away from being in a really bad way with God. And I need to live a life and afraid of that. That his love and forgiveness and his acceptance of me through Jesus, his sacrifice of his very own son for me was more of a transaction. It was really not an act of compassion and love of, of, wanting, of wanting relationship with me. Because it's very fragile, and I'm scared of messing up. It either comes from that, or it comes from the opposite, maybe. It's like thinking a little too much of yourself. This is kind of a, I don't know, I mean, i, I mostly have lived in an American context most of my life. I mean, it's a very American thing to think, that anything that's good, I can get if I earn it, if I try hard enough, if I work hard enough. Everything, everything, everything I've ever had, everything I've ever had, I earned it. And anything that I want, I can earn. And I think I can be good enough. I, on my own, I'm smart enough, I'm good enough, clever enough, that I can do everything right and please God. That's me. I think that I am smart. I think that I'm clever. I think that I'm good. And you just tell me the rules of the game. I don't care what the game is. I will win the game. And a relationship with God is just a very complex moral game that I can win. This is the way my heart drifts. And you may think that this is just some theological discussion that we're having. But I assure you that if you can internalize this in some way, you will see God do something incredible inside of you beyond what you've ever experienced because what we do is we tend to think that if I do good things then I can have a good relationship with God. If I, if I do all the right things, then God will be pleased with me. If I do good, then good things happen. And I need to do the good things in order for God to be happy with me, to be pleased with me, for me to have a decent relationship with Him. When, in fact, it goes completely the opposite direction. If I have a good, vibrant, healthy relationship with God, then good things naturally flow from that. Then I just want to do the good things. And we act like this is just some crazy, spiritual, obtuse conversation that doesn't really apply, like like, like it doesn't make any sense. I don't know how to make sense of that. You send me that God, I don't have to follow the rules. What do you mean? Like, that's so weird. Like, we act like it's overly complicated when, in fact, every healthy relationship that you have works just like this. Not every relationship, but every healthy one. Some people are out there doing the dishes, hoping that their wife will like them. I'm going to fold clothes, hoping that my husband will accept me. I'm going to do chores. I'm going to give gifts. And if I give them gifts, or I do these chores, and I do these things, then hopefully my spouse will appreciate that and love me. And so I do all these things in the hope. I brought you flowers. I'm going to take you out to dinner. I'm going to do all these nice things. And then maybe you'll love me. And if that's where your brain's at, I hate to tell you, that's an unhealthy relationship. A healthy relationship is we love each other, we know each other, we are connected to each other. And because of that, of course I want to do the dishes. Mm, That's overstated. Of course I will do the dishes. Right? I do the good things because of the relationship. Because I love you, I want to do good things for you. I don't do good things for you in the hopes that you'll love me. I think instinctively we know that about relationships with one another. But somehow we think the rules change in a relationship with God when he very clearly says something very different than that. No, that it works the same way. Have a healthy, connected relationship with God. And then from that comes a great desire to do good things for one another. And so what we have to do is we have to switch. We have to switch our verbs a little bit where you hear a command and I'm telling you we're going to keep going in Colossians and there's going to be plenty of do's and don'ts that Paul's eventually going to get to. And you're going to hear them, and you're going to think, well, there's one more thing I have to do. I have to do that. I have to do this. I have to do this. The thing with have to, this is always has this thing, I have to do it. Or what? You have to do it, or what? Or what's going to happen? And, and, anyway, so, and so then that kind of exposes really the legalism. God will reject me. And we need to switch from have to to, again, this is a very fine point, but I think it's important. I need to. I need to do this. I need to. The creator God of the universe who created and sustained life and is the smartest, most wise being in the universe says that this is how I should live my life. I know that the way that I live my life is, has led to a lot of pain. I'm going to choose God's path. I, I, sh- I need to do this. Or maybe I get to do this. I mean, this is a very risky, can we just say, this is a very risky thing to say if we'll just go back to what we talked about 20 minutes ago when I said, hey, giving's down. Would you, would you consider giving? Right, that's like, and then to come back and say, and you know what, your relationship with God doesn't really matter what you do. Like, that's risky. I gotta, like, that's why people like me, we don't, we don't want to say it. We don't want to say it because somehow, like, if, if all of a, if all I have over you is you must do this, and if you do not give, God will be mad, so I encourage everyone right now to go to thegrovechurch.org slash give, and, 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 and you can hold back the wrath of God, which is inches from your door. Short term, in the short term, that might be motivating. But fear is not a great relational motivator. When the reality of it is, is that's what you get to do. Did you know that? You get to do this. You get to make a declaration to God, which is what he said Give me 10% back of what I've given you as a recognition of who I am in your life. And you get to honor God in this way. And you get to honor God and join together with his people to collectively come together, create a church that makes a difference in the lives of other people, makes a difference in our community, makes a difference in the world. This is what you get to do. Not have to, have to. You need to, you get to, have to. We've got, we got to kill that. Because again, following the rules cannot save you. Only a connection to Jesus can. That's it. And he says this, and he uses a really cool metaphor for this um, in verse 19. When he's talking about the, the puffed up guy who's worshiping the angels. He says, They have lost connection with the head from whom the whole body supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow. He says, what we're saying, if you think that apart from Jesus, you're going to go out and do good things in order to please God, and that's, that's how you're going to have a good relationship. You are someone who has gotten disconnected from the head. And again, a body metaphor is a very prominent one in the New Testament, where Jesus is the head of the body, and we are all different parts of the body working together, as the head Jesus directs. And what he's saying is is that what you're doing is, is you are trying to be a part of the body disconnected from the head. So to really understand the metaphor, it gets a little gross. It is like a severed hand. And all apologies to Adam's family fans out there that recognize that a severed hand can sometimes move on its own. In the real world, a severed hand cannot do anything. So a severed hand is like, Go grab that for me, will you? And the severed hand just can't. The severed hand cannot move. And he said, that's what these people are. They are disconnected from the head, trying to do good things for the head. And I would imagine that that situation, I guess I don't have to imagine. I've lived it. It is frustrating and exhausting. I just can't be good enough. I just can't seem to do it. And the more I try, the more frustrated I get, the more exhausted I get, until ultimately I quit. And that is why so many people quit walking with God. Because they have spent their lifetime Completely and totally separated from the head from which the blood flows, between the muscles are connected, which gives everything about a hand its power to move, to grab, to do anything. I've spent my life disconnected from it, having preachers yell at me about all the things that I'm supposed to do and not do, and I can't do them and I can't not do the things and it's just exhausting and frustrated and I quit it. it's not worth it. It's not real. And what Paul is saying is that perspective about the Christian life was never real. He says it was just a shadow. It was just, a, it was just an image. It was just like it was something that was pointing you towards Jesus. To show you. He says this more explicitly in Galatians. It's like it shows you you can't. And once you realize you can't, you realize your absolute and total dependence on Jesus. It's like, I, I need him. And once I realize I need him, I want to get rid of the things that they, all, their only real purpose was to show me how much I need him. But now you're going back. Hey, Paul's like, you're dead to those things. Why do you keep going back? Why do you think you, you know you can't be good enough, yet somehow you think you have to follow a certain diet in order for God to be happy? You need to abstain from alcohol or you, you need to make sure that you give a certain amount. You need to worship at a certain time. You need to do all these things. And that's the way. He's like, that's not the way. It's only a connection to Jesus. That is the only way you can do it. And I think, again, sometimes people like me, I I begin to think too highly of myself. And what I begin to sound like is a toddler. So you ask, he's like, okay, I'm going to get you some milk, a full jug of milk, a little cup, and the toddler said, I, 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 I do it myself, right? I, I do it. Like, no, you don't. you don't do it. I don't have enough paper towel for you to do it. There's a two-year-old version of that, and there's a teenager version of that. I'm just going to live on my own. Like, are you now? And then slowly, like, we've launched a few, a couple. And even they slowly start to figure out, my, my daughter apparently... She saw a TikTok the other day about someone coming to the realization that they were still on their family's phone plan. And then she sent it to me. Ha ha. <laughs> <laughs> we don't really know what it takes, and we don't really have what it takes. There's a, a two year old version of I Do It Myself, there's a teenage version, there's a young adult version, and then there's your version where you see. What it really takes. What, what really, what the, the kind of life that you would really need to live in order to please God. And you look at it and say, I, I do it myself. And God's like, I don't have enough paper towel. You, you can't, you can't do it. We desperately need Jesus. He's what gets us the relationship with God. and It is a strong relational connection. I know him more. I love him more. I trust him more. I see what he's doing. And now, because of that, I do the things that I know that I should. And it's interesting the way he ends it. Because there's something about what I say... That is, that a relationship with God is not based on what you do. There's just something about it just doesn't feel right, right? That can't that can't be it. In part because it's, you've been you've you've experienced the opposite of that your whole Christian life. Well, Paul understands. Verse 23 he says this: Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom, but their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body—it makes sense. You f- you see somebody and they're following all the rules. They just look good, right? Man, look at you. Look at how good you're doing. You're doing all these good things. God, I I want to be like that. And and when you're you're like that, you kind of of puff yourself up. Yeah, great. How great I am. But they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. What I said, it may not feel right. It may not feel right, but it is. It may not feel right, but it is. It's right. Because there is no amount of church attendance that you can have. There is no amount of reading the Bible that you can do. There's no amount of money that you can give. There's no diet that you can have. There is no festivals that you can do. There's no number of Sabbath days that you can have. There's none of that you can do that is going to get rid of the anger and the bitterness and the shame that is in your heart. It's just not designed to do it. Well, it's good for some things. It allows me to feel good about myself sometimes. It allows me to be really critical of you. And I think some of us have convinced ourselves that that's what the Christian life is. I want to feel good about me and I want to judge you. It's good for that. But it is it does nothing to kill fear. It does nothing to kill anxiety. It does nothing to, to to lessen your hatred, your anger, your bitterness, your shame. None of those things. And let's be honest, that's what we need. We need to be healed from the inside out. And so I trust Jesus in this gospel and I know that he died for me. And then I allow him in me, this great mystery, the Holy Spirit now lives in me and he transforms me from the inside out. And now I get to do all the things that God has called me to Now I get to live the life he's called me to. Now I get to look at these commands and say, okay, so that's, that's, that's what's next. Okay, that's how I live. And then, and then God in you gives you the power and the connection to be able to do it. Not to earn his favor, but as the fruit of a healthy, vital connection with God. And yet here we all are legalist convinced that our relationship with God is completely and totally dependent on how good I am on any given day and like a hand lying by itself on the floor we are frustrated and exhausted when the mystery of Christ in you and the work that he will do on you from the inside through that relationship he will remake you where then you get to be the man the woman that you've always dreamed and wished you could be let's pray